This resource is produced by Discipleship.org, championing Jesus' way of disciple-making. Attend the next National Disciple-Making Forum by registering at Discipleship.org. The following audio comes from the 2016 National Disciple-Making Forum. The theme this year was Culture Shift, Back to Jesus' Way of Disciple-Making. Discipleship.org brought together 10 disciple-making organizations all in one place, each organization hosting a different track. One of those 10 tracks was hosted by Disciple First Ministries with Craig Etheridge and his team. Here's audio content from Disciple First and their track called Transitioning a Church to a Disciple-Making Focus. Well, welcome everybody to our forum. And we're here today to talk a little bit about um, Jesus' model as the, the model we should follow. And um, so I want to I kind of set the stage for this. I shared some of this in my uh, breakout, which you guys have been really great to sit through. <laughs> and I appreciate you doing that. Um, I told you uh, yesterday that, you know, really, uh, I came to a breaking point in my first church I pastored to say, you know, this isn't working. What's happening isn't working. It was a crisis moment. And got a report from a consultant said, you know, this church is just going to die. Uh, to, that was really the pivot point to say, I, I can't keep chasing other models. You know, there are lots of models out there. Um, some of you all may be familiar with the Flakes formula of uh, uh, small group growth. That was a model that was very popular. And then, that, then we had the bus ministry model uh, that happened. Then you had a seeker-driven uh, model. Uh, We've had natural church growth uh, model, uh, organic growth model. Uh, Now, you know, it's very popular, multi-site models. There are all kinds of models for ministry, but uh, none of those were producing the results long-term that that I was looking for. And it really came to the conviction that really it's Jesus' model is what is overlooked. So as we started studying the life of Christ, what we found, well, what exactly is the Jesus model? We talked about, well, the Jesus model intentionally pursued people that were far from God. That was part of Jesus' model. That's what he did early on. Jesus' model uh, moved people to connect with him relationally uh, and pull them in community. Jesus' model uh, uh, taught people what it meant to grow spiritually. Jesus' model had an element of training, a component of high accountability and training, investing in a few. That was Jesus' model. And Jesus' model trained a few for the purpose of multiplication. So Jesus' model was all about multiplying individuals, multiplying themselves in the lives of others, bearing fruit, much more fruit, much fruit. And that as I began to look at, that was the model of Jesus. And so I started looking at the programming in the church. It didn't look anything really like that. It was just uh, more Bible study, prayer, but mostly only for believers, not really the model of Jesus. And so um, this really was a pivot point in my ministry. And, and as I told the, the guys that discipled me, I said, you've run me for ministry. Man, I'm just totally run now because this, uh, this model is so different than the, the model that we have now. Um, in, in Robert Coleman's book, I cannot quote it verbatim for you. I have a, a quote, um, but I can't, I can't recite off the top of my head. But basically he said, this model is so simple that escapes most people in the church. Yet when you finally see it, it's so revolutionary that you wonder how you missed it. And I, I believe that that's, that is the gist of how I saw the model, and I think Coleman really captured that. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about this model, and uh, we're going to learn uh, from several guys here on, on this forum. So I'd like for you guys just to introduce yourselves a little bit, tell a little bit about who you are, what you do in ministry, and then uh, we'll, we'll start kicking this around about the model of Jesus. Okay. I guess I'll start. My name is Zach Towery, um, the pastor of spiritual development at First Baptist Church Colleyville, and also the executive director of Disciple First. Um, you know, personally, I'm only about a year into ministry. Um, about four years ago, God began to do a work in my life and began to reveal to me that He was going to pull me out of uh, the secular world and out of business career, 
And so um, it was about two years ago that he really began to make that work and all the puzzle pieces started to come together and um, I began to leave a 13-year career of business management and then go into ministry. So I've now been on staff for a little over a year at uh, First Colleyville. And the cool thing is, is everything that Craig's talking about, I've actually lived that in my life over the past uh, eight years as I was one of the first groups of guys that was discipled uh, at First Colleyville as a member back in 2008. Great. Thank you. My name is Lance Kroll. I am on the Southern Baptist State Denomination, work in Texas, um, so the Baptist of Texas Convention. I've been at the convention about 11 years, and about five years ago, uh, through really our executive director listening to churches across the state asking, what do you need? One of the things that kept popping is help us understand discipleship. So about five years ago, I was retasked to think through disciple-making and what that looks like to help churches and uh, we're, we're a convention of a lot of small churches. There's some larger ones represented here, but about 90% of our churches run under 200 on Sunday morning and almost 60% of bivocational pastors. And so trying to help that group think through what does intentional life-on-life multiplication, disciple-making look like. And so being able to connect with these guys in that process. So that's my job is trying to walk beside and help pastors and you leverage some of the leadership of these guys up here to help pastors as well think through intentional disciple-making strategies. So. I introduced myself a little bit earlier. I'm Christopher Moody. I'm the lead pastor of the First Baptist Church in Beaumont. I'm also a professor of theology for Liberty University. Uh, my great claim to fame is that my wife, Wendy, actually married me. And uh, miracle. Have, I know it's a miracle. Uh, but on top of that, I have three beautiful daughters and five guys I disciple. And so I'm always discipling five guys at a time, usually two groups of two. And just like you were saying, Craig, it was almost an awakening to that. Like, like the, the Robert Coleman quote, you know, you, it sounds like the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at it, it's so simple that people miss it. But once they get it and receive Christ as Savior and the grace that he provided, a wave, you know, Romans, uh, Romans 3, apart from the law, there has been provided a righteousness mm-hmm. that is declared, not, not earned, that once you get that, it's so amazing, so powerful. You're like, how did I miss it? Same thing with disciple making. So you move from the message to the method. And uh, the method of disciple making is so simple that people miss it. Yet when you, once you understand it, it revolutionizes, revolutionizes your, your way of thinking. Whether small church, here you're talking about a, helping young uh, uh, small church pastors or bivocational pastors. They cannot, they can't fail to get this. They've got to get this or else they're... They're not going to be able to sustain any kind of model from a bivocational point of view. So it's powerful. This is one of those thought grenades that uh, is worthy of a, a conference, and we're just glad to be here. Yeah. So thank you guys for being here. Uh, you guys are all my friends, so we hang out and talk this stuff all the time. And uh, so this isn't anything new. But uh, Lance, we'll just start with you. You're, you are, you're working with churches. What What is the is the struggle for pastors that you meet with to understand when we talk about disciple making the way Jesus did it Jesus's model what's the big hindrance well at the, I don't think we have time there's a lot of issues um, we got an hour brother yeah. you, you just unpack yeah. it all you uh, a couple of things that we I see regularly is um, uh, first of all it's this idea is completely not a part of seminary. So I've got young pastors that come out. Their seminary training is, and there's nothing wrong with teaching expositional preaching. We need to teach that. But as far as helping the church understand how to make disciple makers, from our experience in Texas, and just I'm not saying just Texas, but just where we've got folks in Texas, they're coming in and they have no clue what that looks like. Many of them have never personally been discipled. So then to do something that you've never had modeled in your own life, even as a part of what Jesus does, it's very difficult. And so I've got pastors that will call me. I, this past month, a pastor, he's probably 58, 59, somewhere in that range. He's got a young guy who wants to be discipled, and he calls and says, I have no idea how to do this. Like, he's interested, but I don't know what to do. And so, so there's an element that that, and then I think there's another side that just is, has spent 30, 20, 30 years in a programmatic model that everything's what's the next program. And I work in, a, in an area where programs are important, and to have good programs are necessary but it's been about the program, not about the relational development, connection, multiplication. And so to change out of that, everybody still harkens back to a programmatic approach. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good, Lance, but tell us what we need to do as the program 
so that we can fix this, so we can mass distribute it across the church. And it's like, no, no, if this is you meeting with a couple guys every week, starting to change the culture of those men so that you can start needing that as, you know, needing the bread type thing through the whole culture of the church, just like you did and both of you guys do that, that sort of idea. It's, and that's a foreign concept to so many that I talk to regularly um, that haven't seen it and haven't been able to be a part of that. Yeah. And so how do you respond to that? We, we, have, we send them to you. <laughs> uh, first and foremost, even, even to the point, one of the biggest struggles is defining what a disciple is. Part of what we've had on stage, I spent the first year really trying to help them redefine what a disciple is. What, what are we talking about? We're not talking about a Sunday night educational program that, that can help in the, the aid of multiplication and growth, but that's not it. It's a whole lot more than that. And so part of it is a detox. We talked a little yesterday. is a detox of what they've understood of what being a disciple is. I mean, the other thing is, I'll say programmatically for most folks, when I talk to a pastor or leader, I'll say, what is it you're expecting from your people? And there's no sense of spiritual expectation for their people to grow and multiply. It's just attendance. It's nickels and noses, really, right? It's about coming. It's giving, serve, don't cause problems. Go on a mission trip every once in a while. We'll bury you when you die. I mean, that sort of thing. That's, that's program, pra- pragmatically what we're asking of our people. We're not saying, we expect you to grow, mature, and multiply. Right. And, and so this idea of even what spiritual formation looks like in the believer, believer as a whole is kind of a missed. We've got to change that mindset first. And then we'll start working through how do we get them connected with people that can help them or start rethinking that. But I really try to push away from let's not talk curriculum yet. Let's not talk program. Let's talk about what, what your mindset needs to change so that you can start thinking rightly about what it means to be a disciple and make disciples. Yeah. Now, uh, Zach, one of the things that I hear... And I remember sitting at a table when this was discussed and it was, you know what, we, we don't need to do that because people are too busy. They're not going to give you time. You hear that, right? People, are, people aren't going to give you time to, you know, they're busy guys, they're busy people. And they're not going to give you time to disciple them. They're not going to do all those things. So we just need to dumb things down. But you came out of a, a successful career. You were, you were very busy, four kids at home. Uh, so tell us a little bit of your story. Um, on the on the busy note, you know, I would I would look at myself and say that I I don't know that anybody was busier than I was. Um, when you when you have four children, it just everything multiplies. And I tried to convince my wife of that between number three and number four. Like, hey, if we do this, then we're not gonna have more time. And I know it's very selfish of me to say that, but it, it was a realistic conversation that I had. So. Um, Personally, I came out of a very uh, workaholic type uh, job. I was out the door by six, working from seven to probably at least six o'clock at night. The phone always rang. Um, I was always on call, and you know, I was I was a great church member. I was there on Sunday morning. Um, I was committed. I was always available to to do whatever I needed to do. I would teach if I needed to in Sunday school. Whatever the whatever was asked of me, I would do. But had never been challenged by somebody to to really say, you know, where are you investing your time, and to really break down what my time looked like and where I was investing it. And you know, Glenn told me, hey, uh, there's three things that will stand the test of time. You know, God's word, the souls of men, and the Bible. Well, I said, God Himself, His word, and the souls of men. And if you're not investing in people, then you're investing in the wrong thing. And at first, I kind of blew it off. The more that sank in and I began to process that over the next several days, I realized I had it all wrong. You know, and, and I, I didn't, um, it hurt, you know, to think that I'd been doing it wrong. Grew up in a church, you know, in this, my parents were in the same church they were in when I was born. Um, they were doing it wrong, same thing. It just, uh, the fear of stepping out and saying, this is different, this model is different. How are we going to change this? Am I going to look like an idiot? Um, if I go this direction was really the thing that hindered I think, I think it hinders a lot of people from making that transition but it was a relational capital that a guy had invested in me had shown me how to walk with God had challenged me to take that step that opened my eyes to the need right? and then I began to carve out time you said it, you had to make it a priority mm-hmm. and I was busy but you know what I could give a Thursday night a week and so I began to meet with guys in my home on Thursday nights, and then um, 
And then once you do that, once a guy sees that and he sees somebody that he's invested in, take that and then invest in somebody else, you're, you're hooked. You, can't, you cannot stop doing it. It's like the um, uh, once you get a taste of God using you, then that is, you know, that just feeds the desire. So, you know, for pastors here that say, well, my people are too busy, they don't want that kind of investment, what would your statement be? They'll make time for what they want to do. And I think that it's, it's partially our job as pastors and church staff to show them. And I think that that, that investment, um, the investment that you make into them personally, if, you, if they see that you're giving your time to be with them and you're imparting your life and your wisdom and your family and your children and you're, you're, you're demonstrating for them how to live life in a godly manner, then once they have that inside them, then they will replicate that. Yeah. One thing with I think that's that echoes that a little bit is that one of the most powerful thing I think for men specifically is watching other men grow. Like it, it's it's the horizontal effect. Like if you do it in the front, you're supposed to do it, Craig. You're the pastor, but I know this guy, and something's changing at home, and his wife's like he's a different guy. Like I think that's compelling to men. So this idea of how do you get them? It's you get a few that start changing, that start working through the system because the other men, specifically men and ladies, are a little different. But I mean, guys, we get competitive. Why is he grow? What's happening in his life? I want to know about that. And, and I think that's how you start working it through the system a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in in my life specifically, the way that played out was I was invested in. Um, a child, I was I was siblings. I had an older brother, younger sister. Parents, great people, never really been discipled, didn't know what they looked like. And then all of a sudden, I, I reproduced for the first time and then got asked to go to Zambia and then reproduced there, um, invested in 13 pastors. But then when I got home, my dad said, hey, what, what is different about you? And he starts asking questions. Mom starts asking questions. Next thing you know, I'm like, well, hey, Dad, I'm meeting with a group of guys on Thursday nights. You should come out to the house. And so then my dad sits in, and I begin to disciple my dad through what I've learned. And it has completely changed the dynamic of our family. Yep. Now when we get together, it's not just, how's everybody doing? What's going on? It's like, hey, tell me about who you're investing in. Hey, tell me about the group of people you're with. Hey, Mom, you're meeting with a group of girls on Wednesday night. What does that look like? Who's in that group? And we begin to talk about stories, and, and you, our whole family has grown spiritually because of one person's investment in one person in that family. And not only that, but they started to sign with people in their church which became a, a, a whole movement within their church and partnered with us on going to trips to Israel and that kinds of things too. So just just the one, just, you know, it makes you think the one decision to invest in one person, we have no idea where that's going. And we may even think that that died off, but then God uses it again later. This is why all the rewards wait till we get to heaven, right? Because uh, of all that's happening. So that's pretty powerful. So Dr. Moody. Put on your theological hat for us. You don't ever take that thing off. Never do. That's right. So talk to us a little bit about if I'm a leader and I'm a pastor, how do I understand Jesus' model from a theological standpoint? Well, it goes to the gospel itself. You know, there's been some quotes in other seminars. Um, Hull and others have said the gospel... You know that you preach produces the disciple that you are, and so there is a sense in which uh, if the gospel is is reproductive. If there is a if there is a kingdom center to the good news that you're being brought into the kingdom and its work, then the natural question is, okay, I'm here. What's the work? And the work of Jesus Christ, as you see the ebb and flow and the rhythm of his life, is it was always he had a large enough vision to think small. And it was always small and deep investment, you know, guaranteeing that maturity goes deep so that the multiplication could go long and uh, humbling, right, to think that 90% of his time with, his, with, with people was spent with, with 12 Jews. And he reached Americans and Africans and New Zealanders, and he reached the world by thinking small. So, so there, is a, there is a method to the madness you know, the, the way I think about it theologically, uh, back to the comment about how the gospel seems so simple that people miss it, but yet when you receive it, it's so powerful, you're like, how did I miss it? Same thing with 
um, to, to other kinds of conversions. So there's a, a blinder that our flesh, the world, the devil has placed on us to the simplicity of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But then there is a blinder, and I think Romans chapter 6 through uh, 8 highlights another kind of blinders, which is this, Jesus doesn't just want part of you, he wants all of you. Of course, the Greek word there in, in Romans 6, um, 11, and then 12, 1 is peristemi. It's the offer yourself once and for all. And it's, in a, it's an aorist imperative, so it has the idea of once and for all, present yourself as an instrument of righteousness, Romans 6, as a living sacrifice, Romans 12. So Augustine would talk about that in terms of a crisis dedication. Uh, John Walvoord picked that up as well and ha- highlighted that sanctification takes on greatest traction at that point when, and you hear it, somebody will come to faith a year, month, two years, ten years later, they, they stop playing around and they say, once and for all, I'm not going back, I'm, I'm rejecting my false lovers, I'm married to Jesus, and I'm on his team. And I've seen that. I've seen that in a lot of adults where sanctification has a point at which from conversion to, to the process of, you know, I said Romans 8, 1, I meant Romans 12, 1, to Romans 12, 1, where they present themselves once and for all a living sacrifice that, man, it takes off. And so now they're consecrated, we might say. So from conversion to consecration, you see a, a visible aha. Okay, I missed that. I, Jesus wants all of me. But then there is a third conversion that I'm seeing in pastors' lives and young seminary students' lives, where it's so, once again, it, it, it's, it's so fine, so simple that people miss it, but once they understand it, they see the power in it, whether you're bivocational or whether you're a pastor um, later in life just saying, hey, I want my life to, to, to count for something in my twilight years where I can invest in a few and get a large impact. So a, a conversion to uh, the concentration on a few. So a conversion to Christ, a conversion to consecration, and then a conversion to focusing on a few. And that, that is an aha moment that the, those of us here have begun to see creating somewhat of a revival in America. I, I, I mean, just think this conference could not have, it could have, but it did not exist a year, two, five years ago. And so the, the, it's in the national consciousness now to start thinking about church, according to Barna and others, is, has not produced the fruit that they thought. And uh, how do we produce the fruit that Jesus produced? Well, you do it the way Jesus did it. Uh, you know, it's a hit-your-head moment. And, you know, the parachurch ministries of the 1950s is where people went to find that. And now those p- same 20, 30-year-olds who are, would n- naturally be more the ones to go towards that parachurch, they're finding it in the church. And that is such, in our church, it's, it's like an oasis. Uh, you know, they, they shop around, they come to us, and they say, Ah, a church that's not playing church, doing church. They're being the church. They're they're doing things the way that Jesus did things, and that's church. And uh, it's 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 an oasis. It's it's refreshing. And and with that, for pastors, a lot of pastors here today, it checks your ego. It it allows you to see fruit up front and personal. When I say checks your ego, it's not about large numbers. It's about small numbers. So it's not about delusions of grandeur. I've got to be the next. Mega church pastor. No, I need to be a disciple maker. Jesus didn't go after mega church. He actually went after the small numbers. And so there's a checking of the ego. It's a seat you can see fruit. You know, Jesus got to see life change in his 12. And, and my Justin, my John, my Brian, my Bo, my Colin, I can name them fast. These are the five guys right now that I'm, I'm doing life with. I'm seeing them grow. I'm seeing the hand of God's providence in their life. I'm seeing, I'm seeing humility and and sin being captured for Christ, and I'm getting to see that. I preach on a Sunday morning to a large crowd. I don't. I'm looking. You know, there's a third that looks like they don't want to be there. <laughs> the other two thirds, you know, it's a mixture of eye contact. Some of it good, some of it bad. But <laughs> what fruit is that? What do we? You know, you might get an attaboy, but the fruit as a pastor that I see is is huge. And then the third point is back to what Lance says. This is the the ultimate delegation of ministry. Now, maybe that's scary, um, you know, so I guess that's the fourth thing I could say. It takes faith, right, which is what we want. We want faith, but it's scary to give away ministry, but Jesus gave away ministry. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's the ministry methodology of Ephesians 4, the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So it's sustainable. And so there's, 
every reason in the book, um, theologically, to be a disciple maker. Yeah, it's a, uh, it is theologically correct. Yeah. Uh, somehow we have gotten askew from that, Lance. I think about a recent report in Texas where they did a survey of the health of churches. And tell us, uh, you know, remind everyone what the, that revealed about disciple making. Well, actually, just in Southern Baptists in general, Texas and the, those across the country, um, about 70% are plateaued and declining in ours. Plateaued means the front door is as big as the back door. So, in effect, they're really declining. They're just kind of treading water a little longer. And then that puts about 30% that are growing. And, and we know a percentage of that 30% are people leaving the plateaued and declining churches to go to the other churches to some degree. So the percentage of those that are really growing is even smaller than that. And so in established churches, uh, churches are more, I think, more open than ever to having this conversation, such a time as this, as you mentioned, because they're realizing we're not reaching the millennials largely and even younger than that, the next generation. They're not coming to our churches. We get calls regularly. We, we can't reach our kids and our grandkids. They're not in the church. We don't know how to reach them. And their, their style of being very non-relational and all that, not engaging in life and all that is, is, is killing them in some ways in that sense. And so they're open to that. But, but the numbers are difficult for those in Texas, and it's almost the exact same percentage across the country in our specific denomination. Um, yeah, they're, they're saying we, we don't know how to disciple people. We don't know what that looks like. Zach, you talk to pastors across the country through our Flashpoint Conference, which is a disciple-making best practice conference. A lot of the speakers that we've seen this weekend uh, are many of the same speakers that speak at Flashpoint. Uh, What are you hearing from pastors that come to those conferences? Well, the majority of them say, you know, how do I start this? I mean, where, where do I start? I mean, they're... Like you said, they, they come out here from a, a forum or a conference and they, they get all this great information and then they, the real world hits them back on Monday and how, how do, what does this look like for me to implement? And so, um, you know, part of what we try to do is, is not only do the strategy for it, but then how this actually looks and, and break that down to a skills level and give them a plan for, like you talked about in bold moves, give them a plan for what to do and how to do that. But um, what they're saying is that it's, it's difficult. You, all the excuses that you ran through in the last uh, the last session is I don't have time, and you know what, all, what am I going to be thought about if if I invest all my time in, in, a, in a few, and mm-hmm. um, and then you get into even more difficult conversations about what about staff and if people are not on board, and I think that that's also a big issue. Is if if I do this, then we're we're basically cutting our wrist and charging ahead, but there's a lot of people that aren't that aren't on the team and. So it's it's hard. I mean, it's just a difficult conversation to get people to. I think they think it's the right thing to do. They know it's the right thing to do, but then it's just a lot of work to transition and to turn that boat into a different into a different stream or course. Yeah, I remember going to a. Um, uh, we were at a Flashpoint conference, and a pastor came up to me. He was really uh, emotional, and he said, "You know, I pastor a small church, and." Um, I, you know, it's never going to be a big mega church. I'm never going to be a cool, a popular speaker. I don't have a cool band. I don't have all the stuff that we would put on the scoreboards. That is success. And he said, but I finally realized I don't have to be all of that. I can just disciple someone and that's successful in God's eyes. And to me, it was just like the light bulb had come on. And, and now all of a sudden he's not being measured by this false standard of success which jesus never said that was successful anyway but he he he's getting on board i can do that and that can be successful and that can give him tremendous amount of joy and i I wish that i could just spread that to every when you talk about about 60 percent bivocational pastors and small churches man this is where the traction is going to happen uh is is getting guys like that on board Uh, chris you you had a you know, you you had a paradigm shift, but it really happened when you got saved, right? Because you didn't know church the way we know it now. Yeah, Campus Crusade won me to Christ in 1991, and I came to Christ within four days. I didn't go to a worship service. It was on a midweek night. Within about four days, so maybe Saturday, I was having coffee or a Coke with 
with a Campus Crusade leader. He had me share my story. And then he told me, you know, hey, go to this church. Went to Denton Bible Church and just sung my heart out. No one had to tell me to sing. No one had to tell me to read my Bible. Those are things that I was, I had fallen in love with Jesus. He had, he had wooed me and I had said yes to his proposal and I came to faith. The very next week, I'm in a discipleship group with a guy named Todd. And he's having to kind of give me some funny looks about my language and he's having to be gentle with me and and uh, we walk through sin struggle and sanctification struggles and know your Bible and basics for about six months. And then I transferred to a different uh, school and then got discipled by a guy named Charlie for about another year. so about a year and a half. And after about a year and a half, he said, you need to reproduce yourself and so go do it. In that time, uh, I had gone to a, a non-denominational church where Campus Crusade and that church were, were combined to the point where you couldn't see where one began and one ended. And so I thought church was make disciples of non-disciples, share your faith with anybody and everybody, uh, consider them lost until you know that they're not. I was trained for that. Share your faith. If they come to faith, disciple them um, and then repeat. And then on Sunday, when you get together on Sunday, it's the living, resurrected Christ has worked in your life throughout the week, and, and you can't help but sing praises. And, oh, by the way, there's one really good Bible teacher who we can all learn from. Let's hear, and then let's repeat. And it wasn't until I took my first position as, a, as an assistant youth pastor that I realized that churches didn't do that. So about three years into it, I'm reading the Bible. It matches up, make disciples and non-disciples. And then train them to be disciple makers. It matched up with scripture. It's what Jesus did. It's what the book of Acts looked like. And then I got involved with the first church that I was on staff at. And they were doing lots of good things. But they weren't doing the one biblical thing that they were called to do during the week. Which is make disciples who can make disciples. And I began to question, you know, things. And fast forward uh, about eight years that, that righteous discontent for what the church was doing, good being the enemy of great, led me to say, I, 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 I feel called to plant a church. And so we, we started a church plant, with, which is basic Christianity 101 as the model. Um, not some newfangled church growth scheme. It's an ancient methodology mm-hmm. where we're going to train anybody that comes to faith, we're going to lead them to faith, and we're going to train them to be a spiritual trainer. And so disenchanted with... How many extra things churches were doing led me to really see in high definition this simple, simple church methodology of making disciples who make disciples. Mm-hmm. So that is what you took into the church that you yeah. transitioned. I know you mentioned a little bit yeah. previously about that change, but that was like culture shock. Yeah, yeah that little two-minute story I just said, I, I gave that often because it's like I had to define reality to people who were at a church. First Baptist Church of Beaumont um, had over 2,000 in small groups in the 50s. They were on TV from the 50s on. I, I said in a previous group that they had had uh, five, seminar- five Southern Baptist Convention presidents, uh, more than that in terms of seminary, two sitting seminary presidents. They thought a lot of themselves. And God had used that to break them, right? Your own ego becomes the rock upon which you often break your life, you know. And the life of the church got broken upon their ego. They were a movement of God in the 50s. They became a monument to themselves in the 70s. In the 80s, they became a museum. In the 90s, still a museum, one foot in the morgue. And then I came as pastor, and they were change or die. And so I, you know, not not a lot of people have that mandate, but I had a mandate of change. They went looking for a church planter type and saying, using words like replant, reboot, um, rebrand. I mean, they, they were, I say they, the leadership was. Um, out of the, that original couple of hundred uh, leaders that were there, we might have 40 left nine years later. Uh, part of that is they were mostly, average age was late 60s. So I buried a lot of them. Great people. They, they, they were solid. They just knew that the old model, the old wineskin, wasn't holding any wine, and they needed new wineskins with new wine. And uh, the Lord has honored that. And it's, it's a simple church transition to, to see the making of disciples the way Jesus made disciples. And being able, here, here's where it gets really sticky, it's being able to say no to anything that would get in the way of that. And there were so many things that they were doing 
typical, right? Three to thrive model. Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday morning worship, Sunday night worship, Monday night visitation, Tuesday night committee, Wednesday night worship again. And so the question became, where, where would we find any time? And so a lot of what we did early on was try to figure out where we could say no easiest and, you know, eat those, bite those parts off first and then get people to as, as this organic, you know, grassroots movement of disciple making happens. And it does. It all, it does. You make disciples who can make disciples. It's like priming the pump. And then it goes from you to the next to the next and it just flows. And as it flowed, it, it broke up a lot of, a lot of uh, time. It broke up time where we could easily say, hey, let's not do that. Look at all this. And so it, it became, began to be easier and easier to say no. But the Lord has done a big work. He, he did such a big work that eight years, nine years later, the people of our church, they don't point to me. They don't point to those early guys I discipled. They, they say only God. We hear that is a catchphrase we hear all the time in our church. Only God could have done this, this, and this. We, we since sold the downtown campus. Uh, we built a whole new campus where people live, um, which was an act of God. That, that building downtown was, was, uh, was a monument unto itself. So just unbelievable God-sized things happen as a simple result of us focusing on a few. It's almost like shedding your skin, right? <laughs> and a new, uh, new church uh, reborn. And I've, I've had a chance to preach there and hang out with your people. And it's, it's full of life. Yeah, it is. It's, it's full of life. A whole different spirit. Yeah, it's a great, great thing. Lance, that's what we're trying to see happen with other churches in Texas. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, there's, there's so many parts to that. One thing that you mentioned that I love, and just to kind of piggyback on that, was you know, in so many of our contexts, discipleship, and I know that's, a, that's a, the word, disciple-making, discipleship, and evangelism. I was about to tear my shirt. I know, I know. I know how you are with that. So they're on opposite ends in the church, no. yeah, and, and, and they never meet. So we have our evangelism guys, we have our discipleship guys, and we have our mission guys. And what Chris articulated was when I came to faith, I real those all go together, and somehow, yeah, we, we've lost the fact that you know it's it's being disciples and trying to help churches think through that, and even even in the state level, helping my evangelism guy go, look, discipleship and evangelism are not at odds. Disciples are evangelists. If they're not, they're not disciples. So that that concept of we've got to bring all that back together and try to make believers that are disciple makers, not just evangelistic people and not just good learners and you know that sort of thing or people that care about mission it's all together and that somehow we we separated those years ago and i know the history of why and all that but but ultimately part of what we're doing is trying to gather it all up and say this is what believers do and this is what's normal and sadly for most of our people it's not normal so how do you see more churches do that because there may be some people here they're they're honestly in Moody's old church and they they desperately want a rebirth they want to shed some skin and move on but there that's a lot of there's a lot of risk in that and I was sure how that's going to play out quite frankly a lot of churches don't make the conversion well um you deal with this all the time yeah um some churches don't want that there are churches that would just rather They've got enough money to keep the doors open, and they really would rather not rock the boat. That's so, sad. I mean, so what do you the do? saddest thing that you can say. What do you do if that's where you are? Um, and that's the church. I, I think you're on your knees continually, and, and, you're, and you're trying to make change and asking if the Lord's going to transition you or transition them, but something has to move. And I'm not a pastor, so you guys probably could speak into that better than I could. But, uh, but, but ultimately, some don't. And, and, and I think one of the, on the outset, you have to have pastor senior leadership as the key, that they have to be on board with this. And if you're in a church and your senior pastor is not on board, you can do great things in making disciples, but for a movement to change the church, it really has to be from the, from the leadership of the church. It has to, elders or however your church is set up, that sort of thing. And so one of the key things is that those folks have to catch this vision and that they have to be willing to understand it's a long turn uh, your time frame, and you have a very, you're a powerful person. I don't know not everybody's as powerful as you are. It's just, but it's a long turn for, they've had 50, 60 years of this, and to help turn the ship where you're helping them see the reality of what they are, and at the same time where they celebrate the past, helping them realize 
we did great things in the past, but actually we missed some things that we really should have been doing too. Like pastorally working them through that, it's a tough process. But ultimately, I think it's, you know, what do we, when I talk to pastors, the first thing I say is that it's overwhelming. I just start making a disciple. You can worry about it. Just start, find, start praying. I don't have anybody. Start praying that the Lord will give you one or two guys that you can start meeting with. They may be deacons. They may be people on your staff. But you just start. And then we even saw yesterday this whole, but I, and, and I, I love Putnam's argument. I, I'm, you're my guinea pig. I'm going to mess up on you. But we're going to start doing this. And trying to start that change from that perspective is kind of that first step that I think in most cases where guys need to be at. And then asking the Lord to put them around people like some of the different folks in this to help them to walk that. Let me, let me answer that in same kind of words, just in a little different clarity. There was a couple of guys that pulled me aside in between sessions and asked that very thing. Our pastor is not um, a disciple-making pastor. We're here. We're, we're, we're in charge of discipling uh, as a verb. We disciple how, what do we do if our pastor is not on board? And I said the same thing. He needs to be on board for it to become a movement. But for those of you that find yourself in that position, here's what I would say. Number one, hone your craft. Become a discipler on a higher, better level. Learn by doing, right? Learn by failure, trial and error. But grow, learn. N- num- number two, uh, on, on top of honing your craft, see if you can get your pastor around other disciple-making pastors. Because... In this area, like most things in Christianity, Christianity is more caught than taught. And so if, if you're here and you're watching us talk, some of the passion, the energy that we feel towards this is, is contagious. And that's why disciple-making is what it is. You get proximity close together and, and there, there's a lot of life on life. How the Bible say? Iron sharpens iron, right? There is a, a reality there. So if you can have a little conspiracy of... Of, of con- you know, soul connection there. We can get a couple of disciple-making souls connected to your lead pastor. Maybe, maybe some spark will light a fire. Uh, and, and then third, give yourself a good amount of time. And third, pray, 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 pray. And then number four, transition if after so many months, years, it's just not. There's, there's nothing moving there. It's, life's too short to stay in an in my mind, in a non-disciple-making church. If you're a leader who can make a change and be a part of it, great. But after a while, if you don't see that God's using you on that level, you don't need to keep hitting the same wall. So, Yeah, I'm glad you said uh, hone your craft because uh, I was a second chair guy. I was the discipleship guy at a church for several years. And you know, trial and error, figuring things out. There wasn't the resources that there are now. And... But I look back on those years as really times when there was more focus, more clarity, you know, and, and I took what I learned from that to the next stage. So I think that's a really good point, is honing that craft. Zach? You're such a, you're such a pastor. You had four points to everything you said. Uh, <laughs> if they were all alliterated, I'd be impressed. Hey, I'll do that next. <laughs> but you said start a spark or start a fire. You know, in an earlier conversation this week, somebody said, hey, you don't have to advertise a fire, right? It advertises itself. And so, um, you know, we just got back from a trip, and, and one of the guys that was there with us, uh, his name was Jim. Uh, Jim's job transitioned him into, into another church. He goes in, and he goes into the staff and says, hey, I'm a disciple maker. Has anybody here been discipled? Can I disciple you? And so he has this fire to disciple the staff of the church, and they all said no. They said, hey, we have a job for you out in the parking lot. Why don't you go work in the parking lot? And so what he did is he went to the parking lot. And he began to work with the guys in the parking lot and says, hey, I'm going to start a group. And he started discipling them. Next thing you know, there's a fire going on in the parking lot. And all the pastors are coming to Jim and saying, what's going on in the parking lot? <laughs> well, I'm just discipling these guys. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? So if you're sitting here and you say, well, my senior pastor's not on board. Or, um, you know, if you're a lay person here and you say, my pastor, you know, anybody on staff's not on board, just start making disciples. It will advertise itself. When all the stories we have is great life transformation, when you start talking about life transformation, People's ears perk up. Hey, I want that in my life. How do I get that in my life? Yeah. Hey, your marriage is fixed. I want that for my marriage. So they all start gravitating towards it. And all the while, all we're doing is making disciples. Speaking of fire, uh, talk about Flashpoint and the role of Flashpoint in connecting people like this. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a best practices conference. So what we try to do 
uh, is bring in these guys who are doing it, that are practitioners, and say, what are you doing? They say, there's different models. So every church may have different models. Every pastor may do it a little bit differently, say it a little bit differently, but they're all making disciples. And so we bring those guys in and to give their model, and we bring in other churches in the surrounding area. Flashpoint is designed to be more... um, Regional in nature, we're not going to do like one giant national conference. So the next one is in Birmingham, uh, January 13th and 14th, and it's to get all the pastors in the in that area, the Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Southern Tennessee, to come to that uh, to hear these best practices, see what the model looks like in practicality, and then go implement it. So it's really connecting those pastors, and they begin to to network with each other, uh, to lean on each other in times of struggle. Hey, I need I need encouragement here, and now they're they're bonding together. Uh, and the effort to transition their church to disciple making. You know, so if, you, if you've if you heard good things here, a lot of those same speakers are, are at Flashpoint. It's a great way to follow up, bring some people with you, and uh, and get that spark, that fire going in it, your own church. It has a little bit more of a, of a breakout feel to it, especially on the Friday of the conference, because it's uh, from a strategy standpoint. So we set it up to where if you're a pastor and you bring your staff, then we'll throw some concepts out there. You, you, you wrestle with that, and then you have some time to, as a group, to mull it over and to really implement that. You're talking about discipling uh, in children's ministry, youth ministry, adults, men's, women's ministry, but also how you disciple in your home, how do you live a life of as a disciple, lots of things like that. Lance? Yeah, I was just going to piggyback a little bit. We are talking, you guys did a great job, I think, hitting you know pastor that's not necessarily on board, getting him around other pastors. I think... One of the strengths of that as well is the model of Jesus, which you advocate. Um, when you do get their eyes open, instead of saying, well, here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the system we put together that you should be following, what, what I've always loved about what you guys do, specifically you, Craig, as you teach, is you just take them to scriptures. And, and it's, it's impossible to argue with the scriptures. You know, this, well, this is what Jesus is doing. We see Paul actually replicating the same sort of thing. And so the strength of that is if, if you're seeing some movement in some of those and the pastor's ears start to perk and you get them to come to an event like this where they start to hear or read your book or some other things like that, um, you're taking them back to, let's just go back to the scriptures because obviously what we want to do in ministry is built out of that. Um, and, and so it's... it's you see pastor's eye, it just clicks on a little bit because they're starting to read it, and, and all of a sudden the Gospels are open and their eyes start to see how Jesus is moving and what he's starting to do. And I think it's powerful in the sense that, again, we're not trying to convince you to programmatically do it this way. We're actually saying, just, just go back to the Scriptures and let's show you how Jesus did this. Uh, so that's why when you get in conversation, with one of the things I love about you, and, and really actually both of you guys, as you start talking, um, we're always running it through the lens of how Jesus did this. So it's not like, well, you know, I saw this once done by this church. No, no. if you go back to Matthew, this is how Jesus is, you know. So I love that because we're going back to the scriptures continually, not to what someone, and and that's built to last, you know, so to speak. That's built to last on and beyond. Lance, how can pastors start to orient uh, their staff toward uh, the scriptures and doing things Jesus's way. Cause uh, a lot of times the pastor will say, man, okay, I'm fired up. You know, lots of times when people say, well, I'm on the second chair. My pastor's not on board. That could go the opposite way too, right? I'm a pastor. I want to get fired up. And then my staff are like, no, uh, I'm not into that. So how can a pastor, um, begin to change the culture, uh, if he sees that and they don't? Well, I mean, I think you answer this better than I would. Um, I think first and foremost, he just starts making disciples of some of that staff. So he's helping them orientate around the truth of the gospel, and he's helping them see it. But then I think bring them to events like this where you've got like-minded people that you and your staff can talk about, get away from. I mean, just being in Flashpoint or something like this where you guys are, it, there's different models all espoused, but, but everybody's thinking multiplication, replication, life-on-life disciple-making. And that's just not common. There's not tons of events out there. It's, it's very programmatic. What can we learn? What's the next model that we have for something else? And this is much more about. And so getting those conversations that, you know, there's some good books. I think Dan Spader's Four Chairs is a great entry point. Your book for Pastors and Leaders, Bold Moves, is a great entry point. Just to start helping them see what they haven't seen. Again, and for me, like on the front, it's very much a, a change in definition. You know, if, you're, if, if you've been in a church 20, 30 years or a long time and you've, you've seen discipleship, disciple-making modeled or defined a certain way, it's, it's a massive 
process to transition that. It's not going to happen in it's not going to happen in a weekend, but you can start catalytically raising those ideas and those thoughts to say, maybe I have been thinking about this difference. And again, the strength of that is then we're saying, let's go back to the scriptures to figure out where we were wrong. Let's not go back and read what someone else came up with as an idea of how to do yeah, that. Absolutely. There's authority in that. There's authority in that. So um, we're going to kind of uh, begin to wrap things up here. Uh, and I wanted to let you guys share a little bit of encouragement for those that have, uh, you know, they're getting toward the back half of this conference. We're going to go home, get on a plane, and head back home. Um, you know, Chris, let, let you start off and just what are some next steps or some things that you think would be helpful to focus on? We've seen a lot, heard a lot. You know, it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant at times. What are some some handles that uh, we can take away with us. All right, you know, a lot of this, like you say, we've been we've been repeating it. Um, we're, we're basically saying number one, change your language when you go back. Get be consistent and be emphatic and be um, bold with your language. Um, that you're you're using the word disciple as a verb. Right? You're talking about who you're discipling and who's being discipled. And, and so using the word disciple as a noun, you have to define what is three. You talk about 3D disciples, but that'd be the second thing. So define the language, um, use the language, but um, language is that first handle of culture. You know, that's, that's how we, as pastors, if you're a leader, you, you talk. That's part of the communication of your of your leadership is through your words, and uh, so so get the language down. I, as a professor of theology, I am a I'm a stickler for how wrong, how heretical we are with our ecclesiology, and I've heard it all week here. We say we're at church. How was church? I'm o- the unchurched. I'm overchurched, and the, every one of those is the wrong way. The Bible doesn't use church that way. Church is a disciple-making movement of God that is called the kingdom. It's the new part. It's the new covenant kingdom. And so there's new covenant language there. But the church is um, the people of God on mission for God, gathered together to do this. And so be, be anal about the language when you get back. Say, hey, this is, we've, got it. we've got to be more biblical in how we talk about these things. And we're going to be focused and uh, we're going to, we, one of the things we did is as you're leaving our parking lot, it says, go be the church, a big sign, huge sign. And uh, I, I, I had led worship or led a message at your church service. Um, notice how I just said that church service, not yeah, at your church. I, but, I nearly caught yeah, you. I, I almost said your, your <laughs> church service and your church, about four or five of them came to me and said, Hey, we, we really, really need you to give the ironic blessing at the end of the service. It's kind of what we expect. We fit, and we feel we feel like we haven't had a worship service unless we have the ironic blessing. And I was like, "Oh, okay." Well, our people—that's not the moronic blessing. Not the moron. That's that's what they gave me later. No, the ironic blessing. But anyway, uh, at our worship service, our people think they haven't had a complete worship huddle, right? Because we always talk about Sunday morning being the huddle. You break the huddle and you go play the game through the week. You be the church through the week. Like I end all services now. Go be the church. Because I, we, we are, the devil has stolen our language and he's a punk to the point not he's made his language, he's made it culture. He's stolen the language and he's made it the culture of, of church to think of church as Sunday morning. And so can you be vigilant, uh, not vigilant enough? Absolutely. You, you, you have to be vigilant to a large degree. Uh, there, there, there is a point at which it's just not good enough. You've got to be vigilant in the terms of the language. So that's, that's, I'm going to have four points. No, no. Uh, that's that's the first thing. Second thing is disciple. This, this is something hopefully you've heard every single time we've met is uh, the language is important, but discipling is the movement. And so I don't know how many times in staff meetings we have a question, something we're troubleshooting, and we're like, discipling is the answer. You know, how, how do we handle this issue over here in the children's ministry? We need to disciple better or that person. Or we need him to go disciple her, him, her to disciple her. Like they're, they're, it's a discipling, equipping answer. And so see yourself as an equipper and go start equipping somebody. 
And like the image I gave of the, of the, the piece of grass that came up and cracked, a little piece of grass cracked my driveway. <laughs> it's an eight-year-old driveway. It's got a crack. And, a, and so I don't even know what kind of weed it is. But don't mess that, with it. I'm, I'm just, it's powerful. <laughs> Leave it <laughs> grassroots. No, we already sprayed it with poison. All right. There's an image there somewhere. I don't know. But anyway, there, it is a powerful organic movement when you make disciples who make disciples and then release them. Right, you prime the pump, pull the grenade pin, and let it explode. I discipled five guys in 08. That turned into 12 guys in 09. By 2010, I had a handful of women coming to me. They came to my wife or they came to me and they said, whatever Chris and Mark at that point, whatever Chris and Mark are doing in the lives of these men, we want this. Right? And so it's that, it's, it's that uh, you know, uh, Chick-fil-A statement of, Kathy Truett saying, don't worry about getting bigger, let's worry about getting better. And the customers will demand we get bigger. You know, it's that same kind of language. Be, get, become better at personal disciple making, and it creates the revolution. And so outside of those two things, all the other ins and outs come through your book and through walking as Jesus walked, just watching Scripture, how it has its rhythms of disciple making, um, and just living out what it means, living and loving like Jesus lived and loved. Um, that's that's the mo- that's the movement. That's the that's the revival. We're praying for a revival in our country. This is the revival, right here. Uh, Lance, one of the tools that you've helped create is about is called rhythms. You might want to share a little bit about that. Um, sure, I want to answer this question though too. All right. Is that all right? Here's what I would say. The first thing, let me just say, don't do. Don't go home and launch a disciple making program in the church. That's the easiest way to kill it because if you launch that, then it becomes a programmatic thing that everybody wants to accomplish and conquer. And so go back and start making, like he said, just go back and start organically working it, and you'll launch it when it's far enough along that people are coming to you because they're asking about it. That's when you, that's when you can officially launch whatever you want to launch, but it's, it's after you've already had multiple iterations because it's working its way through the church. But, and I've worked with churches before that have, it, we just get in this program, we want to conquer it, we want to get it. We've got 50 groups, and I worked with the church and told them not to, and they said we want to do it. We have 50 groups within, within less than three to six months. All the groups were, were completely dismissed. They, they weren't meeting anymore. And now everybody in that church has a, a thing that we tried discipleship and it didn't work. Right, because they programized it too much. Yeah. And, and you need the programs, but again, you've got to work it backwards. So that's one of the key things. And the other thing I would say is don't go back and spend a year, year and a half working on the system and kind of building this robust whole thing out. I love that Putnam said yesterday is do it and then you'll, you can work. There's good ministries that can work the system around mm-hmm. it. But if you do that, you'll spend forever trying to set up the details of the movement you don't have. <laughs> right? And so focus more on the movement side and asking the Lord to come and do something there, and then, and then as it comes, and you've got some folks that have done this sort of thing here in different places that can help you shape that. So I think those are key components of what not to do that we've seen that have churches that have struggled with that. Uh, we wrote a little book, a friend of mine and I wrote a little booklet on, one of the things that I keep getting asked over and over again is people come to faith, and their, their first thing is they don't know what to do tomorrow. Like how do I, uh, people getting saved, and they're like, uh, there's good material out there, but some of it gets so deep so quick. I don't even know how, to, how what life is supposed to look like tomorrow. So we wrote a little thing called Rhythms, a little eight-week eight study that talks about the spiritual rhythms of things that need to be in your life. So there's a couple that are vertical in your relationship to God yeah, and spending time with God regularly, fighting for holiness in your life. And then there's several that are horizontal. How do I live that out in the spheres of influence God's given me in my home, in the church, as the church, uh, and in the world? Like, so, how, so those are, it's a primer, really. I mean, there's great, you guys are working on some curriculum. There's a good curriculum out there. But it's really, i got so many churches saying, I don't know what to do tomorrow with people that are new believers or maybe even people that have been in the church that have never had anybody say, here's what being a disciple and living like that looks like. So it's, just, it's an introductory tool that we see that there's a need there because they're, they're not helping spiritual growth and development. And so I, if you're interested in that, I can get you details. That's a thing that we give away. So. Great. Very good. Uh, also, uh, Lifeway's Got Disciples Path is also a good tool. I've got several books out there that are uh, good for starting a brand new believer all the way through. So that's another good resource. Lots of good resources out there. Zach? Uh, uh, as a word of encouragement to you, um, 
in my reading this week, I was reminded of a truth that with God, all things are possible. And I think that uh, when you begin to see this disciple-making, I say blueprint, laid out in front of you, what needs to happen, it looks like sometimes it's too daunting or too it's impossible. Um, just, rem- just remember that with God, all things are possible. That he has you here today to hear this specifically. And he has you placed at a church specifically. And if you do what he's asked you to do, which is make disciples that make disciples, that he will work it out for his, for his good in the end. Amen. Well, I hope that uh, hope this has been encouraging to you guys. Uh, thank you guys for your friendship and your, your hard work and your faithfulness to the Lord and how God's using you. So I'd like to, like to close this off in prayer, and then, uh, then we'll be done. All right? So let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we love you so much, and we thank you for your grace that is, uh, that is ours in Christ. Uh, Lord, thank you that uh, you bring us to a point where our eyes are open to not only the, your, your message, uh, but also your methods. And um, <clears throat> Lord, I pray that, that everyone here today, God, would be moved into action uh, to go make disciples of all nations. And that through that, then, Lord, you're going to give them the wisdom to know how to shape that into a movement. Lord, uh, we know that only your spirit can do that. So we're asking you to fill us and lead us and empower us with your Holy Spirit. And we pray that all this would be for the glory of, of God, to the exalting of Jesus, to lifting up Christ uh, to our world that desperately needs you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Learn how you can grow as a disciple maker by visiting discipleship.org, where you can also register for the next National Disciple Making Forum.